another episode of the Beulah Girl podcast. For links, related resources, and even more encouragement, visit BeulahGirl.com. Hi, friend. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Beulah Girl podcast. I'm Carol Whitaker, your host. I'm so glad that you've chosen to tune in with me. I've loved the series that we've been walking through the past few weeks. We've been talking about hope in the midst of disappointing circumstances. And this is a topic that I think is so relatable to all of us. If you're walking through a place that's so hard right now, so heartbreaking, that I hope that these words have been encouraging. If you haven't checked out the previous three episodes, I encourage you to do so. I've talked about a variety of topics, all taken from Isaiah 49. It's a massive passage. So we've drawn from a few verses from that. We've talked about if we're disappointed in our calling, you know, the place that we have um, been called to, and it looks different than we imagined. Um, That was episode one. We talked about how God sustains us on our journey. That was episode two. And then episode three, which was last week, which was one of my personal favorites, We talked about how God can make those obstacles, the things that stand in front of you, how he makes those into a passageway. Um, He can make that into a way, into blessing, into all that he has for you, the place that he wants to bring you, um, your promised land. And so even those hard difficulties, God can use those to propel us forward into what he created us to be and what he has for us. So I encourage you to check out that last episode and the one before that, the ones before that, if you have not listened in yet. How many of you have heard someone say, God doesn't love me. If he loved me, he wouldn't let me go through this or something along those lines. In this particular episode, I want to focus on God's love and in those places of disappointment, one of the biggest lies that we can latch on to is that God doesn't love us. Um, I'm sure that in a place of hardship, maybe you're going through one right now where all of a sudden you just start having these thoughts of, you know, God must hate me or why am I here? It just doesn't pan out to do the right thing. I'm trying to serve God and all I've, um, all I'm being met with is just difficulty. And so maybe you're having some of those thoughts and you're really questioning you know, whether God's looking out for you, it's in those moments where we're at our lowest point that Satan really loves to seize on those times and insert those thoughts of doubt. They may sound like our thoughts. They may just be a thought that pops up throughout the day, but that's really the work of the enemy attempting to get us to doubt God's goodness, doubt what it says in scripture about his love for us and get us out of a relationship with God. In the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve into believing God was holding out on them. He was said to them, did God really say you must not eat from any tree? So he put doubt in their mind when God had clearly said, do not eat from this one particular tree. And he really gave this idea to them that God was holding out on them. Adam and Eve had this perfect environment, perfect bodies, perfect garden to live in, communion with God eternal life, none of the struggles or diseases or, um, you know, issues we deal with now because of the fallen world we live in because of sin. And yet Satan gave them this idea. If we go further into Genesis three, not only does he make them question whether God wanted 
really said they couldn't eat from the tree. But then he says to them, you know, basically the idea that God, the only reason God doesn't want you to eat from this tree is you will be like him. If you actually read the King James version, it says, if you eat from the tree, you will be as God or you will be God. In other words, so he gives them the, this temptation of, Hey, the only reason God doesn't want you eating from this tree is so you will, he knows you'll be God. He'll, you'll be him. You'll be your own God if you eat from this. And it's a temptation that a lot of people have fallen for ever since is the idea of calling our own shots of not just being made with attributes like God, but being our own God. And so Adam and Eve fell for it, right? They fell for it and said, yes, if we eat this delicious fruit, we will have more than we have right now. God must have not wanted us to eat this because he knew that if we did, we would be gods. We would be more than we are right now. But what Satan tempted them with was a lie. They did not become God. They did not become gods. They gained knowledge of evil. Um, so that was, um, that was one thing they did get because of eating the fruit, but it was a knowledge that they did not want to have. God in his mercy and his love was basically um, shielding them from a knowledge of sin, a knowledge of evil. They did not have that before they ate the fruit because of God's goodness. But Satan tricked and turned things around and said, hey, there is good to be had if you eat from this tree. And he's been tempting people ever since. And when we're in disappointing circumstances, he may tempt us with that idea of, hey, God doesn't have your best interest in mind. God doesn't want you to have this good thing because he's being cruel. Maybe it's a relationship, but God said, you know what? You need to break it off. Or maybe it's an opportunity we wanted so desperately and God's saying, no, it's not the right one for you. And we're just so disappointed. Or maybe, you know, we're just plodding through hardship and it seems like we're looking at people who aren't followers of God or are Christians, but aren't walking lives like they should. And we're saying, hey, this really isn't working out for me to do the right thing. Why can't I just, I'm just going to be like them and do what I want. It seems to be working better. Um, but that's, that's kind of the temptation that all of us face when we're disappointed, when we're going through difficult circumstances is saying, you know what, I'm going to walk away from where God's leading me right now and kind of just do my own thing. Uh, because it's not really working out. And we begin to doubt that God really has our best in mind when he does. I want to read to you from Isaiah 49, 14 through 16. It, it says this, But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. Now, this passage gives us a conversation projected in the future between Israel and God. Israel is in exile to Babylon and believes God has forsaken her. Now, we can also read this to mean that it's in, in referring to Zion, that it's also talking about not just Israel here in captivity in Babylon, but it could also mean just the church in general. Like maybe if the church is going through a hard time and saying, you know, the Lord has forsaken me, evil is winning out. Or scholars also say 
that Israel could be complaining here and saying, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me because as we kind of talked about in previous episodes, this whole passage of, of Isaiah is talking about how the Lord will not only restore Israel from their place of being held captive, he's going to restore the nation of Israel, but it talks about how he's going to extend salvation to the rest of the world, to the Gentiles. And so some scholars say, hey, you know, Israel could be taking offense to that and saying, hey, you know, we're supposed to be your chosen people here. You're forgetting us. Why are you focusing on the rest of the nations? Um, and we know just by looking at uh, history that that the, the Jewish people, unfortunately, um, in many ways fought against um, Jesus's efforts to bring salvation to the rest of the world. And so they could be saying here, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Um, so it could be saying any of those things. But regardless, we have this complaint here of Israel saying God had stopped loving her based on circumstances. And we focused, you know, on the complaint. I've, I focused mainly on the complaint here as I've been talking about this. But I want to focus on God's response to Israel saying this because I think it's so important and will bring comfort to us, to our complaints that we may be raising in his direction. If we're saying, hey, God, you've forgotten me. You've abandoned me. I think it's important to look at what God says as far as his response. The first thing we need to note that we can take away is we need to look at in breaking down this passage God's love is steadfast. God's response to Israel's complaint. The first thing he says in response is, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. What we see is that God responds by using a striking picture of a mother and an infant. If we think about a mother, we know that it is a strong bond, perhaps none stronger on earth. And though there are those mothers that we definitely hear about who abandon their children, we're always, I think, shocked by those stories because they're not what we expect to hear from a mom. A mom is someone who we think about has this incredible bond with her child, is always there for her, her child. A mother stays up late to wash her child's favorite shirt just so he can wear it in the morning. A mother is the one who comes to her child's basketball game when there's no one else in the stands other than maybe five other moms. A mom is the one who listens attentively to all the things that happen in her child's you know, school day when that child gets off the bus. She's listening attentively to every detail. And the mom is the one who is rejoicing with the child when something good happened, when that child got a gold star for good behavior, or that child found a friend finally after a few weeks of playing alone, you know, in the playground, or that uh, friend got, or I'm sorry, that um, child got an ice cream coupon for winning, you know, the spelling, the, the school spelling bee or something. Um, a mom is the one who also feels her child's pain, um, who may even weep with her child when the child is bullied or when the child just is struggling in a subject in school and just can't seem to get it. You know, that mom is the one that feels 
her her child's pain and has that incredible bond with her child. And yet God asked, you know, the question, can a mother forget the baby at her breast, but then takes it further and says that though, um, let me look at the exact wording here um, for a moment. It says, though she may forget, I will never forget you. So it's saying, you know what? Moms are incredible. Moms have this strong bond. But he's saying, my love for you, Israel, my love for you, and he's also talking just to Christians in general, my love for you goes beyond that of an earthly mother. An earthly mother may fail or abandon a child, but the Lord will never abandon his people. So that's what he's saying in this first part. He uses this incredible image to say, my love goes beyond that of even the best earthly mother. The second thing that God says in response to Israel and may and we can take comfort from when we're in that place of feeling abandoned it says see I have engraved you on my hands so we can take away that we are engraved on God's hands during this time in Asian countries it was common for people to have the pictures of friends inscribed on their hands so that they could always have the, you know, the memory of those friends with them or just looking at their hands. In other places, people would have the names or marks of their gods tattooed on themselves. And if even today in our society today, if you pay attention to people's tattoos, they tattoo things that are very important to them. The names of people who are loved ones in their life or have passed away. Oftentimes people will get a tattoo to remember someone. Or you'll even see, you know, someone in a relationship that's significant. They may get the name of that person tattooed on them. They're showing how important that person is to them. And I've often thought, you know, like in particular celebrities, you know, their relationships don't often last that long. And often you'll see a celebrity getting a name of, of, you know, a significant other boyfriend or girlfriend tattooed on them. And I've often thought when I've seen that, wow, mm, was that the best idea? Because I, you know, that relationship may last two weeks or two months or a year, and then they're stuck with this tattoo, which they can remove, but it's very difficult to remove. It's a very permanent decision to get a tattoo. So what it's telling us is that not only does God love us more than the best earthly mother loves her child, but God has us engraved on his hands, literally cut into his skin. He can't forget us and we can't miss how permanent engraving is. It's there to stay. God's not saying to us, okay, you have, I have your name written on some clothing that I can discard or a piece of paper. He has us written on his very hands. You know, maybe, um, you know, again, maybe when you were middle school or something, if you needed to re- remember something, you didn't have a piece of paper handy, you would just write it on your hands because it was right in front of you. But again, it was ink. You know, it might stay for a few days would wash off. I mean, we are literally cut into the skin of God's hands. And I love how C.H. Spurgeon describes God's love in this passage. And he says this, it has been the custom in the olden days, especially when men wish to remember a thing, to tie a cord about the hand 
or a thread about the finger by which memory would be assisted, but then the cord might be snapped or taken away and the matter forgotten. But the hand and that which is printed into it must be constant and perpetual. O Christian, by night and day, God is always thinking of you. The third thing I want to pull away when we look at this passage is that God does more than just remember us. So we've talked about how God loves us more than an earthly mother that were written on God's hands. But what we should also know with being written on God's hands, we aren't simply engraved on God's hands for him to look down and remember us. We are engraved on the very part of him that can act on our behalf. The hands, we use our hands to do work. God uses his hands to work on behalf of his people. So it's not that God's just merely thinking about us. It's not we're written on his hand so he can look down and say, oh, I'm thinking about you today. Of course, he's thinking about us, which is an incredible thought to even think about, that God would think about us, that he would consider us, right? Um, who are we for God to even consider? Um, but not only that, he's a God who doesn't just think of us, but works on our behalf. I love what Alexander McLaren notes on this point. The palm of the hand is the seat of strength or work. And so if Zion's name is written there, that means not only remembrance, but remembrance, which is at the helm, as it were molding and directing all the work that is done by the hand that bears the name inscribed upon it. So here God's reassuring Zion, hey, you may be in exile, your city may be in ruins, but I have you written on my hands and I can and will and am working on your behalf. So when we're feeling like circumstances must be beyond the help of God, um, we must remember the God we serve. He knows everything about us and he acts on our behalf. He rescues us. The last point I want to bring away from this passage is the last line that we can break down is it says in the passage that um, the walls are always before him. It's talking about Jerusalem's walls. And so the last point I want to bring out is that God sees things as they can be, not as they are. So when it says that, that Jerusalem's walls are ever before him in this passage, it's basically speaking this to a people. If indeed it's speaking to them, the people, and they're in exile, it's speaking about walls in saying that God, their walls are always before him, it's an interesting thing to say because the walls of Jerusalem had been burned down. The temple in Jerusalem had been burned down. We know that from looking at other passages in scripture. When the people were in exile, it was incredibly sad because they had been taken from their own country, but then they also had these images in their mind of their beautiful temple that had been absolutely annihilated by Babylon and images of their city that had been burned and the desolation and the destruction there. And yet God says, your walls are ever before me. Um, saying here, as Alexander McNair notes, is that God saw a reality for his people that they could not see. While they saw the ruins of a city that they that they loved, he saw a glorious future in which his son would come to earth 
Israel would be restored. And the same is true of us in our hardest places. We survey the wreckage and say, God, everything's destroyed. This can't be fixed. Nothing can change. And God looks at the ruins and sees what can be and isn't discouraged by failure or ruin as we are because all can be made purposeful and be rebuilt in his plans for our lives. So just this beautiful idea that the reality God sees a lot of times is what can be, what will be, not necessarily what is. And so that can be such an encouragement to us if God has told us something that is going to be true of us in our lives and it's not happened yet or it isn't our reality. Again, we're walking with him. We're submitting to him that he's going to make those things come to pass. We don't know how, but they will become a reality for us because he sees things as um, a reality different than we see. And he sees things as they can be, not as they are. When I was um, pregnant with my last child, um, I was induced. Well, I was induced with all of my children. Um, but there was a period, um, you know, after I was administered Pitocin with, with my last child, um, where nurses, you know, I was administered the Pitocin, they were waiting for labor to start. And so right at the beginning, you know, nurses were in the room. There was one nurse in the room constantly with me, getting me set up with IVs and everything. But then after the Pitocin was, um, administered and it was just little drip, drip, drip in my IV. Um, I, I just kind of had to wait until labor started. And, um, so the nurses would come and check on me, but I had a, a heart monitor for my heart, a heart for, um, a heart monitor for the baby's heart that was like strapped around my stomach and this little, um, I don't know what it's called, but you know, next to me, a little machine showing both of our heart rates, but I was laying on my side sort of away from the monitor wasn't really paying that close of attention to it because it was, you know, a, a few hours that we had to wait for the Pitocin to get going, for my body to get going, um, for it to begin to work. And so I was, you know, just use that time. My husband and I hadn't yet picked out a middle name for our daughter. And so we just used that time to go through names. Like my husband had his phone out. We were literally going through names, definitions, and just talking um, just trying to pass the time. And it was almost, I mean, we were joking that we were having a date at the hospital because my younger two kids were being watched by my parents at home. And so here we were at the hospital. Um, you know, we, we, we were just so, had been so busy up to that point. We hadn't picked out a name, a middle name. We had kind of a few we were tossing around. But anyway, so we're just sitting there talking. And there was a point where, we were just so absorbed in conversation. I heard a beeping sound, but I didn't know what it was. And it was, you know, right around the time that I thought to myself, you know, what is that sound? Some nurses, two nurses burst into my room. Maybe it was more than that. Come running over to me, began injecting fluids, doing all of these things. And they didn't even tell me it was wrong initially. Um, they told me afterwards, but apparently the baby's heart rate um, had dropped. And this was, of course, after labor had started. I, I should fast forward a little bit. And they had given me epidural, so I really wasn't feeling anything at this point. But the baby's, at some point, the baby's heart rate had dropped a little bit. And 
they came running in, started doing all of these things. And the baby's heart rate, I, I don't know what the term is, stabilized, I guess you would say. And all was fine. But I was completely, you know, frightened. Up until that point, I was calm. I, you know, just, I was feeling good about um, giving birth. I mean, I just didn't have anything on my radar. But when they came running in with the looks on their faces that they had, it wasn't even on my radar. And it was just, I, I was fearful after that point because I did not know what was happening. I didn't know if the baby, if something was going wrong. I didn't know if I was going to have to have a C-section. I mean, I was just a little bit scared. And I remember one of the nurses, I was asking a lot of questions. I said, are you watching? Because they had a big nurse station. They had the reason that they weren't in my room very much too, was they were so busy. They were just packed and they had all these other women that they were attending to. And so they were, you know, prioritizing, okay, who knows us in the room? And I just had this, you know, wanted to know, like, are you paying attention? And I remember this nurse, she was very kind. She just looked over at me and she says, we are watching. She's like, we're not, you know, we're watching. We're, we, if, if you need anything, we're going to be here. And I just needed that reassurance because I needed to know that they were paying attention. And I think similarly is we want to know that in our life when things are going haywire and we're, we're just, we're fearful and we're not sure God's paying attention. We're like, God, are you going to be here if things, if I need you and things go off the deep end where I just can't handle anymore? Are you here for me? And here we have this assurance in this passage, God saying to Israel, Hey, things look really bad right now, but I see the future. I see what's coming for you. I see what will be, and I've got it. I've got you. I haven't forgotten you. And he uses these beautiful images of us being engraved on his hands and of the love he has for us and how, you know, our future is secure. His, our walls are ever before him. The things that are broken down in our lives, he can easily rebuild those things and nothing is too hard for him. And so what looks so devastating and disappointing to us is he doesn't see it the same way. And so we have all of those reassurances um, in this passage. So I don't know where you are as you're listening to this, but I know sometimes that when you hear about the love of God, it's like, okay, roll your eyes. We hear about the love of God all the time. If you're constantly in church, but it's telling us in this passage that is true for us, whether our circumstances are good or our circumstances are bad. If we have wandered far away from God, it's not too late to come back. It's not too late. Um, to be restored. And if we've never received God's, um, we've never received salvation, we can accept Jesus. It's so simple. All we have to do is pray and ask for him to be the Lord of our lives. And that's, it's as simple as that. And then after that, it's important that we get plugged into a good church, a good Bible believing solid foundation church. Um, so that not not because that saves us because we're saved when we ask Jesus in our lives, but so that we can learn more about God and we can have other people come alongside us and teach us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. So wherever you find yourselves um, on the journey of faith or new to the journey or wanting to get into the journey, we have a God who, when we embark with him on the journey, 
He looks out for us. He doesn't forget us. He loves us. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for this truth we can find in our in your word, which tells us that you love us. And it's so tempting and disappointing circumstances to say, God, you have forgotten us. You don't love us. But Lord, that is the, that is the lie of the enemy, and it's not true. Help us in those times when we hear those lies to combat that with your truth, which we can find in this passage and elsewhere in the Bible, which says that you love us, you care about us, you're out for our good, you're for us. And Lord, that you want what's good for us. So even in those times when what we're going through doesn't feel good, we don't like it. When we're walking with you, Lord, we can we can trust in your provision. We can trust that you'll look out for us. We can trust um, that you love us, Lord, and that you haven't forgotten us. Just like you reassured your people here when they were exiled from their own land, Lord, that they would be restored. Lord, you can do the same thing for us in our lives. So help us to grasp onto that truth. Thank you, Lord, for this truth in scripture and that you love us and never leave us. In Jesus' name, amen.